Father, we've had a blessed week of Thanksgiving this week, meeting with our families and enjoying fellowship together, and thinking about your past grace toward us, and how merciful you've been, and how you've showed us your loving kindness faithfully again and again and again in so many unexpected ways. And it motivates us and inspires us to trust you for your promises of future grace, for the next moment, for the next difficult decision, and for the next hard choice. And in everything, Father, we long to be glorifying to you. We long to represent you well. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us this morning to learn better how to do that from your word in, in this practical text. We pray that you'd be glorified in it now, Father, we pray, and change us and refine us and chip away the rough edges on our lives so that we as a, as a church body will fit together in greater unity and love. I praise you, Father. Anytime we talk about unity, uh, Father, I must praise you for the unity that you've created in this church and that you have preserved here for more than a decade. And so we give you praise for that, Father, and ask you to preserve it continually in the future. And may we be glorifying to you because of it. We give you thanks now and praise for the, Jesus Christ and for the work that he has done that has made all of this possible for us. And we praise you by his great and glorious name, Jesus the Christ, our Redeemer and Savior. Amen and amen. We are back in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 again this morning, where we will be this week and next. And we're still wrestling with the issue of Christian liberties. And how does, how does a Christian think about the liberties that we have and that, we, that God has given us to enjoy? And on a Sunday after Thanksgiving, after we've enjoyed wonderful hours together as friends and family and gloried in the blessings of God upon our lives, what could be more important than giving thanks. After all, one of the most important characteristics of a true believer is that we are people who give thanks. We give thanks to God for everything, for all that we have received from his gracious hand. In fact, the Bible is full of commands and examples of, of God's people giving thanks. The phrase, give thanks, I discovered this week, is in the Bible no less than 330 times. It's a major theme for God's people throughout the scriptures. From Genesis to Revelation, God's people are known as people who give thanks to God. We are called upon to give thanks to God for all kinds of things. For example, the text we read this morning, First Chronicles 16, we are to give thanks to God for his goodness and his loving kindness. In fact, if you do a study on thankfulness in the Bible, what you will find more than anything else, probably four or five times more than any other issue, is giving thanks to God for his loving kindness, for his goodness. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Not so much that he has given us material blessings, but we give thanks to the Lord for his gracious and merciful character. His loving kindness is everlasting. But not only that, but for his faithfulness, for his mighty deeds, we're called to give thanks for his truth, for his standing with the needy, for answering our prayers, 
for his righteous laws, for creating us, for giving us wisdom and power, for the grace of God in Christ, for other believers, for qualifying us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light, for choosing us for salvation from before the foundation of the world. And 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says we are to give thanks in all things. And then in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20, it says we are to give thanks for all things. And so that just about covers it, doesn't it? I mean, we are to be a thankful people. We're to be a thankful people all the time. God is good. He is good all the time. We are to be thankful. We are to be thankful all the time. And thanksgiving is a really important issue in the Christian life. And so the question comes, came to my mind this week, can anything be more important to the Christian? Actually, there are occasions when there is something more important to God than our giving thanks for the things that he is blessing us with. When it comes to exercising our Christian liberties, in particular, loving other people always, always, always trumps thankfulness for our liberties. Let me say it again. When it comes to exercising our Christian liberties, the things that God has given us relative to issues that are not directly commanded for or against in the Bible, we're talking about the gray areas of life where we have to make decisions. In each case, loving other people always trumps thankfulness for our freedoms. Now, I take that specifically, if you're looking in 1 Corinthians 10, and we'll start uh, with the beginning here in just a minute. But I want you to jump down with me to verse 30. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 30. Paul says, If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Now, the English text here uh, is pretty literal, but I don't think it carries Paul's meaning because you've got to get the meaning for the, from the context. And we're going to be seeing that this week and next But here's what Paul is saying. What is to be gained by my exercising freedom to give thanks and eat something that is potentially questionable and harming to someone else when doing so might cause harm to the other person? In other words, here's the thing that I can choose to do or not to, not to do. I can do it for my pleasure And for my delight in this life, because God gives us all things to enjoy, or I can abstain from it. I can give thanks and partake, or I can say, no, thank you, Lord, for the sake of my brother, I will refrain. And Paul, not only here, but throughout the New Testament, cautions us. There is a time for everything, and sometimes it is more appropriate to go hungry than to give thanks and eat. And we'll look at that more closely next week. But this morning, we're picking up where we left off in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now, just a paragraph here of review. Beginning in chapter 8, Paul has been teaching us about a biblical perspective on exercising Christian liberties. The idea here is that because of the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ, we have freedom to enjoy many things in this life and many things that the Old Testament saints were not free to enjoy But we are no longer governed by the ceremonial system of the Old Testament law because Christ has come 
The picture has now been fulfilled by a reality. The sign has been fulfilled by the substance. The substance has replaced the shadow of the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. And that substance is Christ. And now that Christ is come, the ceremonial system is set aside. And we have liberty in Christ. Liberty to do many things that the Old Testament saints were not at freedom to do. The problem in Corinth, however, was that the believers were misusing their liberties. They were flaunting their freedoms. The discussion here revolves around the eating of food sacrificed to idols and even eating that food in the temple of idol worship. But really, the principles here applied to a host of Christian issues in our lifetime. And so in this passage, Paul concludes his argument about Christian liberties by offering some final principles that should govern decisions about exercising our freedoms. And so we're only going to hit the first one today. And we'll finish the rest of this text next week, Lord willing. 1 Corinthians 10, 23 through 33. You've been sitting for a little while. Let's stand together and we'll read this text, verses 23 through 33. Just follow along with me now as I read. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord and all it contains. If one of the believers, one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this meat is sacrificed to idols, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you, and for conscience' sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I, am, if I partake with thank, thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that which, for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. You can be seated. Now, from the outset, it's extremely important that we understand that Paul's greatest concern is that we live in all of the little mundane decisions of life. And by the way, that's, that's where we really live. We don't live from big decision to big decision to big decision. You may only make four or five, maybe less than 10 huge decisions in your life. And those are defining moments to be sure. But the thing that really shapes your life are the little decisions. Will I do this or will I do that? Will I eat or not eat? Will I drink or not drink? Will I go to that movie or stay home or do something else? Will I pray with this person after the service? Will I choose not to pray? Will I minister to someone by cooking a meal or, or refrain from doing that? Will I, will I dress a certain way or will I dress a different way that I think will bring God more glory and protect those around me? All of these little mundane decisions of life that we think are so significant are really the shaping influences that will cause us to become whatever it is we become. 
And so it's important that, that we understand that Paul's chief concern here is that we glorify God in, uh, in everything. In other words, Christians are called upon to show the world how glorious God is. In all of his infinite and perfect attributes, a simpler way of saying this, and this is the way we kind of like to say it around here, is that we were created to show the world what God is like. That's what it means. It's the whole point of being created in the image of God. We are created to show the world what God is like. The way we live, the way we treat other people says something about what God is like. It says something to the believers around us, and it says something to the unbelievers with whom we interact day to day. The question then becomes, how should I show people what God is like when I'm faced with questions of Christian liberty? Whether to eat or not eat, whether to partake or to refrain, whether to go or to stay, whether to speak or to remain silent. How do we govern these things biblically? Well, I'm going to give you a fuller list next week on some help, on questions to ask, on how to make these decisions. But number one, and this is the most important for today, is this. Always glorify God by edifying others. Always glorify God by edifying others. Now again, we're talking about the issue of whether to exercise Christian liberty or not. How do I make that decision? How do I determine what is most important to God? How do I glorify God in that decision? Always glorify God by edifying others. Notice with me, verse 23, Paul says, All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. Now, most scholars, when they look at this passage, and I agree with them, understand that the phrase, all things are lawful, is a phrase, was a favorite slogan and there were many. If you study 1 Corinthians at all, you, hear, you read about the slogans that were, were um, used by the, especially the leaders in Corinth. They're, they're little catchphrases. They're little um, personal marketing tools that, that they used to kind of establish who they were and who should be exalted. And this is one of them. This is one of their mantras. This is one of their catchphrases, one of their slogans. And it was, all things are lawful. And I think they got that from a clear teaching of the Apostle Paul. Um, Throughout the New Testament, God has given us all things to enjoy. One text that, uh, my favorite text in the New Testament, Romans 8.32, Paul explains that since God did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? And we'll look at some other texts that are more pertinent to, to this issue next week. But the problem was that the Corinthians wrongly understood this teaching as a license to enjoy all things without restraint. In other words, I have license to do and engage in these liberties that the Old Testament saints didn't have, and I don't have to worry about them. I don't have to worry about offending God anymore because Christ has died and he has risen on my behalf and grace covers everything. And we're not talking about sin here necessarily. We're not talking about doing things that are inherently sinful. Some things are just inherently sinful. The word of God deals with those. Thou shalt and thou shalt not. It's not what we're talking about. 
We're talking about the gray issues where sometimes it's okay and sometimes it's not. And the Corinthians were saying, look, these are our freedoms. Jesus died to purchase these freedoms. I can always exercise my freedoms and give glory to God. And Paul is saying, just hold it right there. That is not true. Your freedoms are not yours without restraint. You have freedom to do as you please, yes, but not without restraint. This is why Paul had to correct the church at Corinth in the same way by writing these words in Galatians 5.13. You are called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Whenever Paul talks about Christian liberty, and that's a key passage, this is a key passage, probably the greatest passage on this is Romans 14, which we'll look at in just a minute. That's, that's really the, the primary text for this whole issue, but since we're studying 1 Corinthians, we're here. But this is the issue. Whenever we find Paul talking about Christian liberty, it's always governed by love for the other person, love for the people around you. Whether they are believers or whether they are unbelievers, it matters not. You see, the church of Corinth was not the only group of believers who struggled with walking the tightrope of Christian liberty without falling to the one side into legalism. Let's just come up with a list of rules. How many of you grew up in that kind of a setting, in a church where there was just a list of rules? You know, where, where their, uh, one of their, their favorite mantras was, if your hair is too long, there's sin in your heart, right? Um, you know, it's got to be, it's got to be over the ears. It's got to be, you know, above the collar. It's got to be, I don't know. And, and, and for the women, it's got to be exactly the opposite. It's got to be long, um, whatever, you know, there's rules. You can't, you can't drink certain things. You can't eat certain things. You can't go certain places. You can't dance. You can't whatever. And as long as you're obeying the rules, you're good with God and you're good with his church. That's legalism. The other side of the tightrope is falling into licentiousness and hedonism. The idea that everything is available to me now that I'm in Christ. I can do as I please without any worry that I'm displeasing God. As long as I'm not engaging in anything that is inherently sinful, that I can, I can live and enjoy life and do what I please without regard to anybody. And that was also sin. We struggle with this, don't we? We struggle with this. Some of you struggle around the holidays because uh, there are people in your life who don't have the freedom that you have to, um, to engage in holiday traditions the way you enjoy. And some of you engage in, some, some of you struggle because it's an issue of dress. Uh, you like to dress in a certain way that, that really bothers other people. Um, and you could just go down through the list. Entertainment, you want to watch whatever you want to watch, and maybe you have the freedom to do that. But what about your neighbor? What about your unbelieving neighbor? Or what about your brother in the Lord? Paul's concern is, how will your actions reflect upon the God whom you claim to serve? Will it adequately reveal the infinite perfections of God's holiness and God's mercy and kindness? Or will it in some way distort for them, however unintentionally, the true character of God. 
Now, I want you to notice that this is not the first time in 1 Corinthians that Paul's addressed this issue by amending this favorite phrase of the Corinthians. Here he says, all things are lawful for me, and Paul adds, but not all things are profitable. But this is not the first time he said that. Just flip your Bible back one page, one page in my Bible, chapter 6, and look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, there it is again, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be, now here's the twist in this passage, I will not be mastered by anything. And so what's Paul doing? Paul is saying, yes, the doctrine that you have freedom in Christ is true, but there are certain considerations that you need to take to heart when you are about to exercise one of the freedoms that you have in Christ. Because this is not carte blanche for you to do whatever you want, whenever you want. You need to ask yourself some questions before you engage in that behavior. And this first question back here in chapter six is, will engaging in this thing, is there a danger that it will master me? Will I become enslaved to it? If there is an endanger, if there is a danger of it enslaving us, then Paul, Paul does not allow it. The word of God does not allow it. Paul says, I will not be mastered by anything. Why? Because we already have a master. We already have a Lord. He is Jesus Christ. And food doesn't make a good master. And alcohol doesn't make a good master. And cigarettes and coffee and money and friendships and entertainment, none of those things make good masters. They make horrible masters. And they, these, some of these things are good, but they'll ruin your life if you let them rule you. And so exercising our freedom is fine so long as they serve us to glorify God, as long as they serve us rather than us serving them. And so that's the first consideration in 1 Corinthians. But the second consideration is this, back in chapter 10, verse 23. Paul amends their phrase a second time in a different way. He says, all things are lawful to me, but not all things edify. Now, there's another consideration. Number one, will this thing master me? Is there any danger that I could be mastered by this? Could I become an alcoholic? Could I become addicted to this thing? Is there any chance that this, this relationship or whatever it is could rule my life? If there is, then avoid it. Just say no. But here's another consideration. Will it edify those around me? In other words, should we abstain from exercising any Christian liberty that may harm someone else, whether they are a believer or an unbeliever? And the answer is yes. Why? Because when a believer despises us, and that's the inevitable result, right? You do something that causes an offense, whether you believe you have Christian liberty in that area or not, Paul's dealt with that all the way through. We won't go over that again. That person may need some instruction to help them realize that this is an area of Christian liberty. It's not a black and white issue. It's not inherently sinful. But nevertheless, if they're not convinced of that and it's going to cause them an unnecessary offense, as unnecessary as it may be, 
and as wrong-headed as their thinking may be on this point. Our responsibility is to to deny ourselves that freedom for the sake of their good. Because if they're offended by us, if they're offended by us, then our ability to disciple them, our ability to point them to Christ, our ability to show them what God is like is going to be greatly hindered. And if an unbeliever despises us, they will also despise Christ. Next week, we'll look at this more thoroughly when we get into the whole issue of unbelievers in verse 27. But suffice it to say that that one of the considerations we always have to keep in mind is, will this edify the people around us? Now, some of you are thinking, that's fine, but I don't know what edify means. Help me with the word edify. That's a great question. Edify here means to build or to make able. It carries the idea of helping another person grow in Christ-likeness or grow in spiritual maturity. In the English, edify comes from the Latin edifice. Edifice being anything that is being built. Um, if we, when we set out to build a, an additional structure onto our building, uh, we will be looking at an edifice that is being erected before our eyes. It is a building. It will be built little by little, step by step, board by board, but it will eventually turn into a usable building. That's what it means to edify other people. You're building them up, and you're not getting ahead of yourself, which is what happens when we exercise our Christian liberty at the wrong time in front of someone else who's not ready to participate in that. It's like we're trying to finish out the building when really the superstructure is not yet quite built. We're getting the cart before the horse, and it can cause disaster. And Paul hammers this again and again and again in his writings. And so Christian liberty, then, um, if it may harm someone else, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever, we need to be careful. We need to restrain those liberties. But the Corinthians, they were passionate about their own personal, individual rights more than they were concerned about the people around them. It was not love that was governing their choices. It was the pursuit of their own personal pleasure that was governing their choices. It was the rights of the individual. That's why in chapter 9, 8, 9, and 10 is where he's dealing with this, but in chapter 9, it's all about Paul's rights. This is my right. I have a right to get married. I have a right to eat. I have a right to be paid for my ministry but I don't take advantage of any of these rights. Why? Because he knew in the context in which he was serving there in Corinth, though exercising those rights would hinder his ability to represent Christ well. In a different culture, in a different place, with different people, it'd be totally different. But there, with these people at this time, he had to be sensitive to that. And so he restrained his rights. These people were passionate about their rights. Sound familiar? You know anybody who's passionate about their rights? This is America. We are passionate about our rights. And that's okay to the extent that perhaps it's a national thing. And we do have the right to vote, and with every right there comes a responsibility. But in the church, when we exalt our rights to the level of the commands of God, 
and we do one another great harm. And we have the potential of dividing the church. And beloved, we just can't allow that to happen. If you're going to show the world what God is like, our chief concern needs to be not our own well-being, but the good of those around us. After all, this is how God relates to us. And that's the point, right? If our chief responsibility is to show the world what God is like, then what was God like? Well, when we want to know what God was like in terms of how he related to other people, who do we look to? We look to Jesus. And what do we discover? A couple of scriptures for us. Mark 10, verse 45. Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to what? Give his life a ransom for many. Philippians 2, 3 through 5. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as what? More important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then the whole example of Christ Jesus laying aside his eternal privileges of being God to become a man in order to save us. That's the example. You want to show the world what God is like? Relate to people the way Jesus related to people. Because Christ put the needs and interests of others above his own, his people should do the same. Self-gratification should not be our primary goal. The edification of others should be more important. Again, this is a major theme with Paul in his letter to, and just this letter, just this letter, 1 Corinthians, and he wrote more than one letter to Corinthians. In fact, there was four that we're aware of. Two of them were inspired texts and are in our Bible. 1 Corinthians 8.1, let, let me just hit on these and you can write them down and look at them later. But I wanted to kind of give you a survey and show you how important this is to understanding the book of 1 Corinthians. This is a major issue, and if we don't understand this issue, we're never going to understand the whole issue of head coverings, which is coming next, pray for me, and, uh, and then the Lord's table is after that, and then the spiritual gifts, pray for me, pray for me, right, on that one. But you're never going to understand those issues and why Paul approached them the way he did if you don't understand this call to put aside yourself and to edify, build up, help other people grow in Christ, and to do that to your own hurt, to do that to your own restraint. And so we read things like this, and I think this is an exhaustive list. 1 Corinthians 8.1 now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Best I can tell, that's the first usage of the word in 1 Corinthians, but not the first time the concept is alluded to, and we'll see that because he does it in different ways throughout 1 Corinthians. And then 1 Corinthians 10.23 is where we're at. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. And so one of the questions you need to ask is, Paul, why are you, why are you saying all things don't edify? Are you just pulling that out of the air here? And the answer to that question is no. This is what I'm getting at. The whole letter 
is really governed by this principle. Are you living for yourself? Are you living to magnify the glory of God through your service to other people? And so he continues, 1 Corinthians 14. Now we're getting into the whole issue of tongues and, and, and uh, the spiritual gifts in the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 4. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but one who prophesies edifies the church. Now, I don't want to preempt that message, but let me just get you thinking about this, and you can argue about, about it with me later if you want. 1 Corinthians 14, 4. When he says... The one who speaks in tongues edifies himself. I've known so many people over the years who, who use what they call a, a prayer language, a tongues as a prayer language. And they'll, they'll point to this text and say, see, Paul says it, it's, it's useful because it edifies yourself. To which I would respond, don't you understand? Paul is rebuking them for that. That's the whole point throughout the book of 1 Corinthians. All you want to do is edify yourself. That's not what tongues is for. And so he gives this contrast. Read the rest of the verse. One who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. It's this theme all the way through 1 Corinthians. We're not existing to edify ourselves. 1 Corinthians 14, 5, the next verse. Now I wish that you all spoke in tongues, but even more that you would prophesy, that's proclaim the truth. And greater is the one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, unless there is an interpreter, so that the church may receive edifying. In 1 Corinthians 14, 12, so also you, since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to abound for the edification of the church. 1 Corinthians 14, 17, for you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. In 1 Corinthians 14, 26, what is the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one of you has a psalm, a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. Let all things be done for edification. This is the very point he's hammering on throughout the whole book. You're living for yourself, and that needs to change. You exist to show the world what God is like. When God came in Christ, he didn't come to exalt himself, but to save those around him. You live as Jesus lived, and so show the world what God is like. You see, beloved, many things are more important than pleasing ourselves. And you may be able to watch a certain movie, go to the theater. You may be able to drink a certain drink. You may be able to wear certain clothing and give thanks to God personally. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. But that needs to be governed. It needs to be governed by your love for people. Look at verse 24. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Very similar to what Jesus said in Acts, quoting Jesus in Acts, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Your job is to be like God. Be the giver. Be the giver. Be the one who sacrifices. Be the one who serves. 
Yes, God has provided all things for us to enjoy. But if that enjoyment causes harm to the conscience of another person, we are called upon to restrain our liberty for the good of others. Now, earlier in chapter 8, verse 1, look at that, and you don't even have to flip the page if your Bible's like mine. Chapter 8, verse 1. Watch this. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Watch this. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Here, Paul is teaching that love is superior to knowledge, which is a big deal for them because they were all about philosophy. They were all about Sophia. They were all about exalting what they understood to be true and heady and deep and stimulating when it came to knowledge. And Paul's saying knowledge is good, but beware. Knowledge will make you arrogant. On the other hand, back here in chapter 10, um, he's saying love is superior to knowledge. And then here, he teaches that love is superior to liberty. Love is superior to liberty. That's the point of 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Why does he insert that right there? I mean, Paul, you're on a roll here about the spiritual gifts, and we want to learn about the spiritual gifts, and the whole love thing is really neat, and that's warm and fuzzy and everything. Why would you put that right in the middle of your discussion about spiritual gifts? It's because they were misusing the spiritual gifts. They were doing it to edify themselves, and Paul is trying to teach them, your responsibility primarily is to love God and love other people. And even the spiritual gifts need to be restrained for that purpose. And so all things are there for us to enjoy, yes, but they must be restrained. And so then the question comes, when was the last time you sacrificed your own rights so as not to inhibit someone else's growth in Christ? When was the last time you, inhibit, you, you inhibited your own rights? You, you sacrificed them for someone else's good. Have you ever chosen not to listen to a certain kind of music with other people because you knew it might cause someone else to stumble? Somebody's not ready for that. From time to time, do you choose not to wear a certain outfit or dress because it might bring inappropriate attention to yourself and distract from the things that would give more glory to God? Have you ever opted out of going to a particular movie or restaurant out of sensitivity to another person's conscience? Have you ever restricted your right to play something, whether it be a game or whether it be a song on your instrument of choice or sing a song that might cause confusion in the mind of a fellow believer who may listen and say, is is that Christian? I say that because as one who used to play the guitar as a, as a kid a lot. I, I know that at least it was true of all of my friends who played. One of the first things you want to do when you play the guitar is play the cool songs. And the cool songs are usually bad songs. But they were fun to listen to, and they were fun to play. And a lot of times we drift back to that. And someone else hear us? Or we sing a song. It just comes to mind, and we blurt it out. And someone near us might take offense at that. Are we even sensitive to that issue at all? You say, well, my heart is pure before God. No question about that. That is not the question. That's a given. Maybe maybe that's true. 
but how is it going to be received by someone else? Have you ever restricted your right to some favorite or lawful holiday tradition out of love for someone else? Beloved, this is what Christians should be known for, going out of our way to protect and encourage the spiritual growth and well-being of others. It's a hallmark of the Christian life. This is what we do. And remember, the chief goal in all things is to glorify God. So, when faced with a decision about a practice, we should first ask if we have the right to do it. Because there are some things where God says, thou shalt not. And that's a given. But if it's not forbidden in Scripture, the answer may be yes, at least initially. But our next question should be, is it profitable? Is it edifying and building up for other people, those around us? If the answer to both questions is yes, then we can do it to the glory of God. Praise God. In fact, that's what we're going to see in the very next verse next week. But if the answer to either question is no, either question, then we cannot do it for God's glory because it will not edify either the other person or the other person and us. Beloved, this is how we live This is how we live out the gospel in practical ways every day of our lives. We are different than the world. It's not that we don't have liberty. We do have liberty. The difference is we don't live for ourselves any longer. We live for God and we live for other people. By this, we show the world what God is like, as Jesus did. How did Jesus do it? John 3, 16. For in this manner, God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. 1 John 4.10, this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Galatians 2.20, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Ephesians 5, 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Beloved, this is the life that we're called to live. Is there anything more important than thankfulness? Yeah. There is something more important than you giving thanks for some wonderful provision that God has given you. You got a great meal sitting before you? Wonderful. Give thanks and enjoy it. Has God given you some opportunity to be entertained or to entertain others or to dress a certain way or to do whatever? Praise God. That may be a moment for you to give thanks to God and enjoy. It may also be a moment when you give more glory to God by saying, No thanks. No thanks. I'm concerned about the people around me. I love them as God loved me. And so I'll refrain out of love for them and concern for the glory of God. What is more precious to God than thanksgiving? It is simply this, loving others by restraining our liberties for their good and the glory of Christ. Amen? Let's pray.
Father, we give you thanks this morning for so many wonderful things, and this is such a pertinent message for us here in the holiday season because there are so many um, choices that we make to exercise in liberty. Pray, Father, that you would help us to not do that without restraint, but to do that with consideration as to how it will affect the people around us, how it will affect both believers and unbelievers around us. And then, Father, the things that we are confident we can exercise in terms of liberty, may we enjoy it for the glory of God. Every meal that is served, may we eat it for the glory of God. Every drink that is offered, may we drink it for the glory of God. Every tradition, may we engage in it for the glory of God. And, Father, everything that we discover may be a point of contention with someone else or inhibit their spiritual growth. Oh, Father, I pray that you would give us the wherewithal to love that person more than ourselves. Lord, we love you and we praise you for this morning. Thank you for this body of believers who is so unified because of Christ. And so we thank you for this holiday season and all it means to us. May we worship you through it and glorify you in it in the exercise of our liberties. For we pray it in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.